0: Good morning, it's a great uh, morning to awaken to, we're glad you're here this morning and uh, trust you've had a good week, even if it wasn't, uh, it's a new week ahead of us and uh, you know life has its ebb and flows, but there's one who is faithful all the time and consistent in our lives and he's the one that we're here to praise and to focus on today. Uh, please take a moment and a connection card, if you would, attached to your bullets in there. Put it in the basket when it's passed later on. Today is starting point right after this hour. If you're new to us and uh, are willing to get better acquainted, we'd love for you to stay for lunch today. It's right in the hub, right in the big room next to us here. And uh, we invite you to stay afterwards. We'll be done by 1.30 or shortly after that. A short investment of time, but maybe we could help you on your the strategy of growing in the Lord together today. God is so good. This is a great week, Vacation Bible School Week. We have a record number of pre-registrations. Over 900 kids have registered already, and we usually have lots of walk-ups on Tuesday mornings, so it promises to be a great week, and if your kids and Grandkids are coming, I hope it's good for them, especially when you pray this week, pray for the fringe kids, you know, the kids, uh, this is all strange to maybe, or they don't come out of of godly homes, or they're coming with neighbors, and it's all new to them, but they have a great week of being loved on and accepted and and welcomed here, Uh, great seeds are going to be planted. You know, the psalmist said, I love your house, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. And when he wrote that, he was thinking about the tabernacle or the temple, but for us, it's people because uh, when Christ died on the cross, he made it possible for us to be the church and he has chosen that his spirit would live in us. And so we are his temple, we're his tabernacle, and he wants his glory to be known through us to the world. And so uh, we're here to be reinvigorated in our faith and I hope you'll find that today. Let's pray as we continue. Our Father in heaven, thank you for making us alive in Christ. Thank you for the redemption we get through Jesus. Thank you for your spirit who empowers us. Thank you for the blessing of worship, by which we are reminded of your authority, your supremacy, your place in the universe, and in our lives. And so I pray today, Father, that we will be refreshed in our faith for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in John chapter 16 today, across Christendom and many places. This is called Trinity Sunday, and there is focus given often in the Holy Spirit today. So that's what our text is about. Less than 12 hours before Jesus went to the cross, he met with his closest friends, his disciples. They had supper together. And at that time and after that, before the cross, he did a lot of teaching to prepare them. Uh, about what was coming. He was about to die for the sins of the world, and they weren't really prepared. And so in this passage, he has given us and teaching us more about the Holy Spirit in these few verses than he teaches anywhere else in his instruction uh, of his, in his three years of ministry. And this instruction is uh, so important for all of us to understand because, you know, people say, well, what in the world is the Holy Spirit doing? And, you know, they say the same thing about preachers. What in the world does that guy do all the time, you know? And some people have have reduced what we do to hatch, match, and dispatch. We bless babies, do weddings, and do funerals. Well, it's a little more encompassing than that. Uh, One little boy said, Mom, I want to be a preacher. She said, Why? He said, Because I want to be paid to yell at people. (laughs) And I resent that. All right. Here we go. Chapter 16, verse 1. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogues. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So we have here basically the Holy Spirit's job description. It has three parts to it. First of all, the Holy Spirit convicts us of how bad our sin is. Increasingly, in our culture, sin's not all that bad. I mean, people are people. People do wrong things. uh, We make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. We're only human. All those suggest a downplay on the problem of sin. But the Holy Spirit is about to convict us, not just about individual sins, but about sin itself and how heinous it is before God. First of all, he convicts the pre-believer. I'm using the term pre-believer instead of unbeliever because the Bible says that one day, you know, one day everybody's going to be a believer. Now, I'm not suggesting universalism, which is taught and communicated in the movie The Shack, if you've seen The Shack. Now, there are a lot of cool things about that movie. That's not one of them. That would be heresy that all of us eventually are going to be saved. But it does say, the Bible does say in Philippians 2, that one day when Christ comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For all those who did not confess Him as Lord before that occasion, they'll go on to eternal damnation after they have to face the facts of reality of who He is. For those of us who have named Him, who have prepared our lives, will go on to to our, our reward. The Holy Spirit is all about convicting the world of unbelief. That is the only unforgivable sin. And when Jesus talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit being unforgivable, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the person that continually rejects the good news of Jesus Christ. There's no hope for that kind of person who will not submit to his authority and his lordship. Now, we all have a story. There was a time when we were convicted of sin. Now, my wife was eight years old uh, when she realized how bad sin was. Now, that's unusual for an eight-year-old. Um, uh, she grew up in the mission field in southern Rhodesia, which knows as Zimbabwe. So she lived in the bush uh, part of the time. She she saw dramatic things happen by the preaching of the gospel, even witch doctors come to Christ and turn their life. So she was she was in an unusual set of circumstances where the, the dramatic aspect of watching a person's life be changed really affected her. She says she remembers being eight years old, and she she thought she was going to go to hell if she wasn't baptized into Christ. Now, that's important as you raise your children, that that's what you look for. Not just that they love Jesus. I mean, that's a good thing. You want to encourage them. But I think what makes salvation such a blessing is we realize that we have offended our creator, that we have sinned against him, and we need rescued from those sins, from the, in the sinful minds and heart that we have. That's what, that's what makes him so grand. And so that's what the Holy Spirit is all about. Now, when you give your story, you might include a person that talked to you about Christ or a song that you heard or uh, uh, something you read or a circumstance in life that you went through or uh, maybe an emptiness that you felt. And all that is part of the process. But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts. Now, he may use the song or the person, the friend, the occasion, the emptiness, That he is the convictor of our lives that wakes us up to our need for Christ. In Acts 2, the Apostle Peter, on the first day of the church, stood up and there was a crowd of Jews there. And this is what he said. This is about two months after Jesus died on the cross. He said, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's, they were convicted and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. So your will has to be involved. That's why we don't baptize babies. The will has to be involved. That's what repentance is all about. And be baptized. The word means immerse or to dunk or to plunge. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What I wonder when I read that is if Peter had preached 24 hours earlier, those same words, where the results have been the same. And I'm not sure because he would have been preaching in the flesh. And the Holy Spirit did not ascend upon Peter and the others until that morning. There's something that happens by the Spirit's empowerment because he's the one that convicts. And he uses all kinds of people to that end. We're here, the majority of us, because we have experienced that conviction and we have surrendered to Him. Second of all, He also convicts the believer. He convicts us of disobedience. You know, when's the last time that any of us were on our knees asking the Holy Spirit to shine the light of truth on our hearts to reveal anything wrong in us that does not align with who God is? That's a scary prayer to pray. And I confess that I don't pray it very often. I love what Mark Twain wrote one time. He said, when I was a boy, I was walking along the street when I happened to spy a cart full of watermelons. I was fond of watermelons, so I sneaked up quietly and snitched one. I ran to a nearby alley and sank my teeth into it, but no sooner had I done so than a strange feeling came over me. And without a moment's hesitation, I walked back to that cart, replaced the melon, and stole a ripe one. <laughs> now, you know, most of us know that we're in the process of doing something that it does not align with God. We we typically know that. i the occasions. I remember being a senior in high school. It was a Friday night. And we just wanted to do something. And so on West Holm Road in Springfield, Ohio, in the Ritzy area, there was this retaining wall, concrete wall. And the, the people hated that all the time seniors were coming and writing their school and class year. They had just whitewashed it. So we got the idea. We'd, put, we'd have the pleasure of marring it for the first time after that clean whitewash. I remember that whole process that I was thinking, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. And we, I kept doing it. And I tell you, the Holy Spirit showed up in the form of a neighbor with a shotgun. <laughs> I took off running. And I ran, stupid me, I ran the opposite direction from where the car was parked. So I... <laughs> I, I was really a mess. You know, years later, you know, my mom was a godly woman and my, my wife had to tell my mom what I had done, you know. And my mom was very unholy spirit-like. And she said, oh, if that's all he did. Well, that's not all I did, you know. <laughs> but she didn't know how to know about all those things either, you know. My point is, you know, that, that usually in the course of life as we're growing in Christ, we know our hearts, we know our minds. And what happens You know, we do have a conscience, but you can't trust your conscience until and unless it's reshaped by the Holy Spirit of God. Our parents help us have a conscience, teachers do, coaches, all kinds of people are part of that, but all of that shaping is flawed. It's not until the Holy Spirit comes into our life and He reshapes our consciences, and, and, and gives us direction about our life, and we're to be attentive to him. Now, it says here in the text, I think it, uh, it's, it's verse nine, 8 or 9 right there, where it says he, he proves the world wrong, proves the world. Some translations say he convicts. Now, that, that word, that term is a legal term. It basically means he's our prosecuting attorney. But then right before that, the Holy Spirit is called our advocate, now, what is he? Now, Our prosecuting attorney or is he our advocate? Yes, he is. You have occasions in your life where your wife or husband has had to say some hard things. You know, my wife says some things to me sometimes that I need to hear. Do I want to? No. Am I defensive? Yes. But I need to hear them. Small things and big things. I mean, sometimes she'll say, you've got your preacher voice on. She hates the preacher voice you know and so i have to i have to take off that preacher voice and, and straighten out you know and but i need to hear it and then what does she do does she leave me because of, no she continues to love me and walk with me that happens in marriage doesn't it when you have to say hard things to the person you most love but you do it for the improvement of your marriage and your life together right you have to do that with an aging parent who won't take care of themselves and you have to say some hard things about their future care or the transition that needs to take place. You do it to a dear friend because you care about them. And, and so and so you, you, you say these hard things. If you've ever been involved in helping an alcoholic friend or an addict friend, you say hard things to them. And then you walk with him. That's the picture of the Holy Spirit. He alerts us. He wakes us up. He, says, he convicts us and the guilt comes. And then he embraces us and walks with us. Because he's our paraclete. That's the Greek word. One who walks alongside him. So don't shun him. Let's welcome the conviction. And let's also welcome his presence as he loves us through it all. Second, he convinces us of how wrong our righteousness is. You see, we're all, we all tend to be self-righteous. Now, we use that term about other people. When there's somebody that we think's on their high horse or holier than that, we say, oh, she's so self-righteous. You know, we're all self-righteous. You know what that, you I mean, righteousness basically means? Basically, it means making ourselves presentable. So when you write your resume, you want to make yourself presentable to the person who's going to interview you, Right? You don't put them all the places you work where you blew it. You don't put certain references down, and you hope they don't find out who you else you know other than the three names you put. If you don't have three good names on your resume, you probably shouldn't be in the workforce anyway. <laughs> Everybody should have three people that say something good about them, you know. It's all the people that they find out the truth about you. You know, we make ourselves presentable on our resume to get hired when when, if you're in the hospital, you're really desperate to want to go home. And the doctor says, well, let's, let's evaluate how you're feeling and see. And you're going to, you lie. You stretch the truth because you want to get out of there. What happened? You relapsed. you went to the hospital a week later because you went home too early. You were trying to make yourself seem better than you really are. We do that with our children. We lecture our kids before we take them somewhere because you're afraid your parenting skills are going to be evaluated by all the other parents there. You behave. I want to look good. You behave. You know. <laughs> See, that's all about making ourselves look better, appear better than we really are. That's what righteousness is all about. And there's two kinds of people that have difficulty dealing with the righteousness that comes from knowing Christ. First of all, it's difficult for those who feel superior. You know, we all tend to evaluate ourselves as being better than we really are. And we all feel like, well, you know, God really ought to love me. He ought to accept me. I mean, I'm a good person. I'm a good citizen. I, I, I believe that he exists. I know he died on the cross. You know, I'm a good moral person. You know, I, I, I've done some good things for people. Why wouldn't he save me? That person has difficulty in recognizing deeply, deeply a need for Jesus Christ. And most of us in middle-class America, Bible belt, like us, we tend toward that because we're such nice people. And so we have to be aware of this, friends. We have to be very, very careful about this attitude toward ourselves. You know that there were some researchers that studied prisoners in Great Britain. The prisoners they studied were guilty of robbing and violent crimes. And what what was stunning about their discovery was all the inmates felt they were better than all the other inmates. They said of themselves, they rated themselves being more moral, kinder to others, more self-controlled, more law-abiding, more compassionate, more generous, more dependable, more trustworthy, more honest than even the average Person, citizen of Great Britain. Now, why are we like that? Because we compare ourselves to each other. That's what we do. Is our behavior better than a lot of people? Well, sure it is. We're in church, right? You know? Do we believe better than other people? Sure, we believe the Bible. And so from that way, see, we compare ourselves, and what happens, what's created is that I'm better than somebody else. And then we, we, we bring that evaluation in, and, and that, is, that is a heinous thing to do. We live in a world of comparisons. I've, I've warned us all about this. That's the danger of social media. Do you know how intimidating it is to be a preacher these days? You can go home this afternoon, and you can think, "Well, that's a dud sermon this morning. I want to hear a good one. And you go to a podcast, and you will hear this afternoon the best sermons in the world from extremely gifted people. You can read books by the same preachers. Go to their seminars. It's a terribly intimidating time to be a preacher when congregations can have the best preaching in the world at their fingertips. That's true. School teaching. You can compare yourself. Why, why don't I? Why don't I, can't I be school teacher of the year? Why didn't I get that promotion? So we compare ourselves to one another. That's our nature to do it. There is one who is righteous, only one, Jesus Christ, nobody else. And he's the only one we set ourselves next to, right? That's it. The rest of us are mutual strugglers trying to work this out and know that our being presentable is only by the fact that we have been clothed by the righteousness that comes from knowing him. Now, this thing, this is also difficult for those who feel inferior because those who feel terribly inferior never think God could really, really save them and love them like he loves other people. So maybe I can spend enough time really making myself better so that God will really love me, accept me, and I give him a reason to love me. Friends, he has, there's no greater reason for God to love you than by the mere fact you have been created in the image of God. By that fact alone, you are of invaluable, inestimable worth to him. And no matter what you have done, no matter how your dark days look, you know, Christ Jesus welcomes you into his family when you surrender to him. That's the good news of the gospel You see, the difference between a religious person, a mere religious person, or even an unbeliever and a Christian is not admitting we've done wrong things. It's not repentance. It's not repentance of our sins. Everybody knows they've done wrong things. That's not what sets us different from from the world. What what marks the true Christian is that we also repent from our righteousness. We know that no matter... who I am. I can never earn my way to heaven. And of course, I am not good enough to go to heaven. I'm not good that obligates God to get me to heaven. And I'm not so far away that I can never be worthy of heaven. It's only Christ Jesus and his blood that it makes the appeal for me. And I can stand before a holy God clothed with the blood of Christ in a robe of righteousness. Isn't that good news? That's good news, friends. It helps you rest. It helps you relax and enjoy the journey. Paul said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. So we put all our trust in what Jesus did on the cross. That's how we're made righteous. None of us are worthy. I talk to people all the time, well, I'm just not worthy to be saved who is? I'm not. You're not either. But Christ makes us worthy. That is just the good news. And third, the Holy Spirit confronts us with how certain judgment is. Sin, righteousness, judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit is all about. First of all, the judgment of Satan. We talked about him last week. And he is on the move. We, we affirmed that last week. It's very obvious. He's the prince of this world. Verse 11 says, the prince of this world now, now stands condemned. The prince of this world now stands condemned. Well, then what is all this? Because right now, since the cross, until the coming of Christ, we're in this period between his conviction and his sentencing begins. It's already been done. The sin, we know what sins is coming. Revelation 20 says, the, and the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown down. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's still to come. Now he's on the loose right now taking as many people with him as possible. This is the ultimate end of the evil one. And, and, the, and the Lord is teaching us if this one who used to be Lucifer You know, the angel around the throne of God, if he could walk away from all that rebelling against God and end up in eternal damnation, Paul says, how can any of us escape if we ignore such a great salvation? And God is not willing, he does not want anybody to perish, but everybody to come to repentance. So he's going to be condemned. God doesn't want you and me to be condemned. But there is the judgment of people coming as well. Acts 17 says, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. He will judge with perfect justice. He's a great God of love, but he is also a God of justice. And one day... His judgment, his wrath is going to fall on all of those who have not surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. Now, I hear people say, well, I can't believe God would ever send anybody to hell. Well, that's like you go to the doctor and the doctor gives you a diagnosis and gives you prescriptions to fill and a surgeon to see. And you say, well, I don't want to do that. And then you die. And you get mad at the doctor. The family gets mad at the doctor because you died. When there was one remedy you were given and you didn't take advantage of it. There is one remedy, friends, Jesus Christ and his blood. And praise God. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how bad you are. It's one remedy for all of us. Know the way we can be saved, but then by the name, the blood of Jesus I love the story of Charles Finney. Charles Finney was a great preacher, but not always. He was a lawyer. He graduated from Princeton Law School, and uh, he, he was feeling pretty good about himself. And a judge asked him, so what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm going to start my practice. And the judge said, well, then what? Well, I you know, I hope it's going to be pretty lucrative. I'm enjoying a good life. And the judge said, well, then What? well, I hope it'll be lucrative enough that I can have a good retirement and then really enjoy the fruit of my my work all those years. And the judge said, then what? And Finney said, well, I guess that'll be the end. I'll come to the end. And the judge said, no, that's not the end, because then comes the judgment. And you know that one statement woke up Charles Finney, and he left law practice, and he became a lay preacher, And he is largely responsible for the second great awakening, as it's called, a revival in our nation that took place all down the eastern seaboard of our land. I mean, it was so vast that bars all over towns were closing because so many people, thousands upon thousands, were turning to Jesus Christ because one man one day faced the reality of the judgment of God. That's the truth today, friends, and if you have not faced that reality, please face it. There's no reason that anybody in this room today will miss the good news of Christ's return because now you've heard the gospel. He died for your sins. He was buried, and he rose on the third day. He ascended to the Father, and it's good news that he reigns in that place today, and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord means surrendering to him. And saying, God, I don't want any of the gods. You are my judge. You are my savior. And you alone will be my Lord. The Holy Spirit is on the move today. And this is what he does. He brings people to their senses. Maybe it's you. If so, let us walk with you in the greatest decision of your life. Let's prepare to worship.